Hi, this is Steve Robbins. What you're about to listen to is an unedited version of a presentation that I gave called Living an Extraordinary Life. It's based on a TEDx talk that I gave at TEDx Mill River in 2012, and I hope you enjoy it. The journey is the reward. I heard this pretty early in my career, and I wasn't sure what it meant. Until one day. I'm not a particularly religious person, and I had a dream. And in the dream, I was talking to God, and or the Supreme Being, or whatever your personal conception is, the universe. And the universe said to me, I'm going to give you a sneak peek at the final exam for your life. And I thought, cool, I'm a really good student. If I know what's going to be on the final exam, I'm going to be able to ace it when the time comes. I said, shoot. And he, she, it said, there's only three questions. The question number one is, did you make the most of the one extraordinary life that I gave you? Whatever making the most of the life means to you. Question number two, were you a good steward for the planet? This is the planet that seven billion people have to live their extraordinary lives on, and we all need you to take care of it, because if you don't, other people aren't going to get the same chance you are. And question three is, did you help everyone around you do the same? Well, I thought about it. And I was like, okay, let me, in reverse order, am I a good community member? Did I help everyone do the same? Well, I mean, come on, I'm an executive coach, right? This is, this is basically my job, is I help people do that. So I'm actually pretty darn confident that I've helped everyone do the same. Question two, was I a good steward for the planet? Give me a break. I live in America. I have an iPod, three iMacs, two Windows machines, a beautiful table that was probably carved out of some rainforest tree that has existed since the Pleistocene era. Um, and I drive a car. Excuse me. I drive a car. No. There is no, really no world in which I could be considered a good steward for the planet. Yes, I recycle. But compared to my carbon footprint, it's probably irrelevant. Which means that my grade on the final exam all comes down to question number one which is, did I live an extraordinary life with the one life that I was given to live it? Well, okay, this was kind of a scary question. One of the things that I did for quite some time is I would do career coaching at HBS. I would come in for a day or two a month, along with some other alumni volunteers, and we would coach students as they were graduating. One of the things that I noticed is that so many of these bright, intelligent motivated, committed people had absolutely no idea how the world worked. They, they were doing things that was involved around getting a job as quickly and as soon as they possibly could, whether or not it was the right job for them. And I always thought that was a very risky strategy. I said, why would you do this? And they would say, because I want to reduce my risk. And I would say, what do you mean by reducing your risk? And they were always talking about reducing their short-term financial risk or their perceived long-term financial risk. The thing they were never asking was, what is the risk vis-a-vis not having an extraordinary life? They would rather put work into optimizing for a quick and speedy job hunt than, and then have a, a horrible job that they hate and spend years trying to recover from than to spend the time and the work into getting the right job and then having the rest of their life be wonderful and amazing and incredible. And it was this that was the problem. They were evaluating risk, and they were putting their effort and their work into the wrong part of the process. Well, I was turning 40, and I thought, you know what? 
I used to be 27. And as much as these kids have no clue how the world works, maybe I didn't have a clue how the world works when I was 27 either. But I'm 40. And furthermore, I'm a graduate from MIT and Harvard Business School, which are two pretty high-powered groups. So I figured if any group of people would have had good theories about how the world worked and how life worked, it would have been my classmates. And furthermore, we're 20 years into our career now, so we've got a database to find out how well our beliefs worked. I rushed to the phone, and I started calling people from undergrad and grad and asking them, where are you in your life? Are you living an extraordinary life? And if so, how did you get there? I also asked people, how did you think you were going to get there? What were the theories that you had about how life worked and about what would get you what you wanted? And what I found, which probably won't surprise anyone listening to the call, is that our beliefs about what worked and the reality of what worked diverged pretty substantially. Furthermore, and perhaps most scarily, the people who had the least extraordinary lives were the people who had managed to adhere closest to their plans. And the people who had the truly extraordinary lives, when you asked them how they did it and what happened and what led them here and there and the other thing, it was always a very different story from anything that they would have predicted at the age of 20 or 25. The more I talked to people, the more it became clear there were a few pervasive myths, and these are very pervasive myths in our culture, which just didn't seem to apply. But despite the fact they didn't apply, we continue to live these myths every day. The first one is the myth of hard work. How many times have you said to your husband or your wife or your friend or your child, work hard and you'll get ahead? And then other times, of course, you'll say to them, well, work smart, not hard. But mostly, you'll say, if you're not getting the results you want, work harder. And I started thinking about this, and I thought, you know, it's the 21st century. Take a look at someone working, and virtually any job looks the same. It's somebody sitting, staring catatonically at a screen, occasionally twitching a finger here or there to type something. Uh, or if the person is mobile, then they are sitting on a train or on a bus or sitting on a parked bench, staring intently at a cell phone or a smartphone, twitching their fingers occasionally, catatonically. But that's basically what work has turned into, unless you're in some sort of heavy lifting type industry. And I thought, you know, that, that doesn't look very hard. So I wonder what we mean when we say work hard and you'll get ahead. Now, the nice thing, I don't know how many of you know this, but I have a podcast, which is a personal productivity podcast, and it's one of the top business podcasts in the world. So I have a lot of followers. And I figured, you know what, I'm going to just send out the question to my followers and say, what do you mean by hard work? By, what is the definition? If I were to watch you doing hard work and watch you doing easy work, how would I know the difference? Roughly 90% of the people who responded said the same thing. They said, by definition, by definition, hard work is work that you don't enjoy. Only 10% said, said hard work is work that's a challenge. Almost everyone said that hard work, by definition, is work that you don't enjoy. And I said, well, what about, what about something that you do enjoy, but you spend 20 hours a day doing it, and you work weekends and so on and so forth? They say, oh, that's not hard work. I, if I love it, it pulls me to do it. If I love it, even if it occupies a lot of time, it's not hard work. Wow. Think about that for a minute. We tell our kids, work hard and you'll get ahead. And what we mean is, by definition, do something you don't enjoy and don't want to do, and you'll get ahead. And then we wonder why so many people end up so conflicted about work and why the workforce engagement level is at or disengagement level is at 68% or 86% or whatever the Gallup number is. It's pretty amazing. 
So I started looking a little bit more at hard work, and I realized there's a number of real problems with the myth of hard work. First of all, we dramatically undervalue context, especially in America. We pay very little attention to the situation that we're in, and we tend to assume that whatever results we get are the results of our actions. You know, if we happen to be born to the right parents, we never notice that. If we happen to be lucky enough to meet someone on the street who then becomes a mentor or who helps us, we don't notice that. And there's a good reason, right? I mean, human what we do when we try to figure out how the world works is we correlate stuff. We look for things that happen together, and we say, this is cause and this is effect. Well, the one thing that we have 100% perfect information on is our actions and our intentions. So it's very natural that we are going to assume that everything that happens in our life correlates with some action that we did or some intention that we had. But in fact, that just isn't true. There's an awful lot that happens around us. I moved away from home when I was 15. And I supported myself. My, my parents did not send child support money, and I supported myself as a computer programmer. And this was in the 1970s, so it was, a, it was way before 15-year-olds often supported themselves as computer programmers. And I had this notion that I grew up self-sufficient, that I couldn't depend on anyone else, that I made it all happen myself. At my 22nd high school reunion, I was talking with a bunch of my friends and discovered that there had been an entire network of people out there who knew about my situation and they, and they liked me, which was another big news to me. And they would make sure that I got invited to people's homes to hang out for dinner. And the parents of all of my friends, in fact, were making sure that I was fed and that I was taken care of. And I had no idea about this until 22 years later. I had this wonderful myth of self-sufficiency, total myth. Similarly with hard work, we believe our results are the result of the work that we have, not the result of the context we're in or the context that we create. Now, one thing I have noticed, although I don't really believe there's much of a correlation between hard work and success, however you define success, um, there may have been at one time. But these days, you know, uh, the correlation is loose, if at all, when I take a look at, at who is successful along different dimensions. However, there does seem to be a pretty high correlation between laziness and failure. Although working and putting in effort doesn't necessarily lead to success, not putting in effort and not rising to the occasion does seem to be a pretty good way of guaranteeing that you won't get what you want. The myth of hard work is that hard work will lead you to the life that you want. The second myth is the myth of goals. Now, you, since all of us on this call are presumably high-powered people who get things done, this is, I'm really preaching against the choir here. Because what I'm going to claim is that goals are pretty much a myth when it comes to planning your life, even though we all do it. We have goals about the college we're going to go to, goals about our career, etc. When I talked to people who had extraordinary lives, and when I looked at my own behavior, what I realized is that goals are very, very fleeting. You, you are climbing a mountain. You get there, you get there, and now you're on top. And you get that little photo op, and you post it to your Facebook page, and you head down the mountain again. And the next day... You're back at work, staring at your spreadsheet, having to add up some column of numbers. When you talk to people about the fabulous things that they've done, they never talk about their goals. What they talk about is the journey that it took to get the goal. It's not the goals that matter. It's the journeys that matter. And in fact, in many cases, one of the themes that came up is that goals can be adhering too closely to your goals can actually blind you to any opportunities that aren't part of that goal. So you'll continue to pursue a crappy or boring goal, 
even when better things come along because you're so blinded to the other things. Instead of thinking of a goal as the thing you have to accomplish, think of a goal as a compass that motivates the journey. All that a goal is is it tells you which direction to walk in at any given moment. You can change the goal and it will change the journey. But the point isn't the goal, the point is the journey. It's also true that goals are very motivational. A goal can pull you along, but again, it doesn't satisfy you once you get there. The myth of goals is that we should all set goals and then strive to achieve them. Maybe, maybe what we should do is just set goals that are gonna send us on an interesting journey. And then if we find some other journey we wanna take instead, set a new goal. And of course the advanced course is dispense with the goals and go straight after the journey. We'll get to that towards the end of the presentation. Goals motivate, but they don't satisfy. The next big myth is the myth of planning. And boy, do we buy into this one. And this is because planning works so well for certain things. Plan if you're building a building, planning works great. Now, but why does planning work? Planning is basically a roadmap through time. It tells you what to do and when to do it to be able to get the results that you want. But let's think about a roadmap through space. I want to travel from Boston to San Francisco and I have a map. Why does the map work? Well, the map works because the terrain doesn't change while I'm driving. The map has a longer time frame than the drive. If in fact the terrain changed more rapidly than the map changed, the map wouldn't be any use. But when you're planning your life and when you're creating a map through time, time and the world changes faster than your plan, which makes the plan largely obsolete. First of all, the world changes. I was at an urban planning symposium yesterday where they were talking about building infrastructure in urban settings that's gonna last for 100 years. And then other panels were talking about how the rise of social media and the internet has changed the needs of physical infrastructure as retail becomes less important and shipping and, trans and other transportation considerations become more important. And that's fascinating. And that could never have been planned. So the folly of making a 100-year plan is that you, you believe you know what is going to happen to the world in those 100 years. And what we're finding is we don't. Not only does the world change, but when it comes to planning your life, we change. When you're 35 years old, if you had a 20-year plan that you set out at the, at the age of 15, you're letting a 15-year-old plan your life. If you made a life plan at 25 and you're adhering to it, when you're 45, you're letting a 25-year-old plan your life. And what sounded like a wonderful life of doing a beer circuit, a, beer, a bar beer circuit every weekend and hanging out with your friends and, and um, uh, going skiing and having drunken debaucheries and what stays in Vegas or what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Well, you know what? When you're 45, that may not be the life that you want. And of course, the other problem with plans is that we assume we know what the plans are. And let me tell you something. If you ever get a chance to coach a 27-year-old MBA grad, listen to the plans they believe are going to work. I want to become an entrepreneur. I'm going to spend nine years as an investment banker to make finance contacts, then 20 years as a consultant to learn about different inter industries, and then when I'm 63, I'll start my first company. Really? Gee, how's that going to work for you? Can you find me a few people who have done that career path and made it work versus going out and talking to entrepreneurs and discovering what actually happens? So it may just be that one of the problems with planning is you're not good at it. You don't know what the elements are, and you end up on a plan that's not going to take you where you want to go. The myth of planning is that we can put together a life plan. 
And then there's the myth of marshmallows. Oh my gosh, we love this one. This is about a, a social psychology experiment that was done, I don't know, 40, 50 years ago, where they gave uh, four-year-olds a choice. They could have a marshmallow now, or they could have three marshmallows in four minutes. And they videotaped this, it's, it's, and it's hilarious. If you Google like marshmallow experiment and watch some of the videos, and you see this adorable little four-year-old girl staring at the marshmallow, and then she tries to distract herself, but her eyes keep creeping back to the marshmallow. She reaches out and touches it and just like pushes it down and squeezes it a little bit and then pulls her hand back. And they followed up with these kids 20 years later, and what they discovered was the children who ate the first marshmallow versus the children who had the willpower to wait however long the time was to get the three marshmallows, if they had the willpower for the deferred gratification along a large number of measures, they were more successful in life. And this is the myth of put in your hard work now, and once you've made your fortune, then you'll be able to do what you want. I'll work first and reap the rewards later. And it sounds like a great theory, and maybe that works when you're talking about planting crops or when you're talking about the things that were common 100 or 200 years ago as professions. But as far as I can tell, and by the way, this does work for a small number of people. In particular, I've met several investment bankers who retired at 35 and then did what they really wanted. But for the vast bulk of us, this doesn't seem to be a particularly good strategy. And in fact, this can be the most dangerous strategy of all of them. And here's why. One is that people gradually engage in self-deception. A gentleman said, you know, I absolutely hate actuarial accounting, but I'm going to do it for 20 years, and then I can retire and do what I really want. And 20 years later, this is a friend of mine, we were talking. He reached his goal. He had enough money to retire at the age of 45. And at that point, he was just convinced that the thing he loved most in, world, in the world, actuarial accounting, was genuinely the thing that was going to save the world. Somehow, the things he really wanted to do at age 45, he had managed, in order to keep himself working for 20 years, he, at something he hated, he had managed to convince himself that the thing he hated was really what he wanted to be doing. Uh, boy, don't do that. One of the tests for that is to ask yourself, and you have to do this before you've engaged in the self-deception, is would you still do this thing if you weren't being paid? There's other problems with deferred gratification. When you have a deferral job, let's say, and the most common one, one or two in business school these days is investment banking or consulting. Those are the two big deferral jobs. Your identity gets wrapped up around that. And if you do that for 10 or 15 years, you're, and I'm talking your psychological identity, you begin to define yourself as a banker or as a consultant. And once you've done that definition, it becomes very, very hard and stressful to break out of it. Even if you earn your, your amount, people say, what do you do? I'm a retired consultant. I am a retired investment banker. You become very deeply psychologically invested in the deferral job, not in the life that you want to have. Another one is you just don't know what you want to do next. Great, you do the deferral job over the course of 20 years. You forget what it was you wanted, you really wanted to do in the first place. And as happened at my last reunion, you end up standing around with a group of people talking about how, oh, I'm retired. What do I do now? My wife hates me. She never actually wanted me in the house to begin with. She just wanted the nice house and the nice car. And now that I'm home all the time, she's talking about a divorce. Why? Because I'm not interesting. Why? Because I forgot how to do anything in life except my job. Then there are more structural problems with deferring what you really want to do. One is you never develop the skills in the thing you want to do. If you're putting off 
going and becoming, going and doing the opera singing you want to do, you're not necessarily spending your time training your voice and getting to the point where you can do that. If you're putting off going and working in a third world country for a period of time because you want to build houses, you're not learning the languages. You're not learning how to build a house, etc. And you're not building a network. You're not creating the infrastructure that would allow you to do that easily. So when the time comes to make the switch and you are the person, you're the the finance person who now is getting into Habitat for Humanity, what do people want? They want you to write a check because you they don't know who you are. All they know is that you're coming to them with a bunch of money and you're not part of the professional network. You're not part of the, not the social and the, the informal networks. You're just not part of it. And then, of course, the saddest part about deferred gratification is that a certain number of people get hit by cars. And if you get hit by a car before you get to the point where you defer the gratification, then by definition, your entire life was spent something that was a def- spent doing something that was a deferral. Not only was it not an extraordinary life, it probably wasn't even an enjoyable life. And that would be a shame. You only have one of them, as far as we know. So it's a good idea to make the best use of it. So people say, you know, I'll have life balance, but I'll do it over time. First I'll work hard, then later I'll play hard. And I'd like to submit to you that the entire concept of life balance does not exist. There is no life balance. There's only life. There is only how you choose to spend every moment of every day. And if you choose it doing something that is meaningful and deep and fun for you, then that's how you spend that moment of your life. And if you spend it doing something that's going to pay off in the future, but you hate doing it right now, that's how you spend that moment of your life, whether or not it pays off in the future. So it's important to realize there is only life. And you know what's even worse? I'm just the voice of good cheer now. Uh, There is only life. And we get trapped in it because the more we defer things or the more we do something we don't like, the more we build systems and we build a life that has a certain shape and we fit comfortably into it. Now, this is a double-edged sword. The good news is we build systems that help us with whatever we're trying to do. So if we are building a manufacturing company, we make – we form relationships with suppliers, we get to know certain kinds of people, we learn about certain types of issues, we get into logistics, yada, 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 yada. And that becomes the world we live in. Now, the reason that's a good thing is is we set that up, we get that knowledge, and we don't have to do it again. Now we can build on top of it, and that is what makes it really easy for us to run and build our manufacturing empire. That's a good thing. But the unexpected consequence of that is it really becomes a puzzle that surrounds us. And then if we want to change and do something else, we're locked in to the puzzle piece, which is, which is left by all of the things that we have created. And this is where habits and systems come into play. Because the most powerful obstacle to us changing our life and doing something extraordinary is not fear. People think it's fear. I know I think fear definitely plays a role, but I think the larger role is played by habits and by systems because we create these habits and systems that help us with our immediate goals, which are the deferral job if you're doing the marshmallow plan. And, and they're great. If they work, they work because they work so well, we stop noticing them and we can put our attention on the things that really move us forward. The problem is just because we stop putting our attention on them doesn't mean we don't still have a whole set of habits and systems that are designed to drive us in the direction in which we are going. There's an ancient Chinese curse which says if we do not stop what we are doing, we will likely get where we are going. And this is true. And again, the habits and systems that work for you in your 20s may not work for who you are in your 30s. And the ones you establish in your 30s may not work for who you are in your 40s. The most dastardly the most sinister 
and of course the most powerful of those habits and systems aren't even the external ones. They're the internal ones. They're the beliefs that we have. I was talking to a prospect who may even be on this call, and and if so, they will know who they are. Uh, somebody who wants to leave his job and become an entrepreneur, and this has been a dream for quite some time. And we've talked on and off over the course of several years about this. And we were talking recently, and and uh, this person said that they're not really ready because they have small children that they have to take care of. And then a few minutes later in the conversation, this person mentioned that they were 37 years old. And I suddenly thought about this. And I thought, if you have small children, that means you didn't have small children in your 20s. So there were other excuses. And in fact... That's the sort of thing that you can always find an excuse not to leave the comfort, the comfort and perceived security of a corporate job and take an entrepreneurial plunge. There will always be excuses. And if you're 37 years old and you still haven't done it, you have established a habit of finding excuses. And by the way, that's fine. But, but remember, that's a habit which is designed to keep you in your comfort zone. It's not a habit that's designed to push you out of it. So if you want to take a leap and go from a corporate environment to an entrepreneur, you're going to have to change that habit. And you're going to have to realize there will always be an excuse why now is not the right time, which means that, that largely paying attention to those excuses is probably not the way to make that kind of change. If you want to start building an extraordinary life, what you need to do is do a deliberate shift. And you have to do the shift in your habits and in your systems. And the particular things that comprise our habits and our systems are our beliefs, the commitments that we've made to other people and other organizations. Sometimes the commitments are legal, like taking on a mortgage. Sometimes they are informal or they're organizational, like volunteering for the, to be the chairman of a board. Uh, or they can just be commitments that we've made to ourselves, like I will never let I will never let so-and-so down because I disappointed them in my 20s and I will always be there for them when they need me, which may be a wonderful, satisfying commitment, but it is a commitment that keeps you stuck. So if you need to do a shift, you need to look at the commitments you've made. You need to look at your expectations. Expectations are what drive us to do what we do. We, do, we take certain actions, we engage in certain behaviors because we expect them to lead somewhere. If you need and want to change your life, changing your expectations is a critical piece of that. Then you're, there's your beliefs. Um, beliefs are one of the trickiest parts. This is one of the things that, that where I spend a lot of time as a coach and where, and where I, of course, have just as many blind spots as anyone else. And that is that our beliefs are typically not conscious. We don't sit around and think, oh, here are the things that I believe. They just guide our behavior. But if you want to make a major shift, your beliefs almost always are some of the most powerful drivers that need to change in addition to the external pieces of commitments and expectations. I was talking to Ted Turner about, oh gosh, it was like seven or eight years, maybe longer ago now. We had met at a conference. We were standing in a hall having a conversation. And it was a, it was a nice, comfortable conversation. And on the inside, what was going through my brain was, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, I'm talking to Ted Turner. Oh my God, I'm talking to Ted Turner. Holy crap, that's Ted Turner. I, of course, was diplomatic enough not to say any of that out loud. And then I had an interesting new thought. I thought, and Ted Turner is talking to me. And all of the things that he's done and the famous things he's done and the sports teams that he's owned and blah, 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 and being married to Jane Fonda, and all of that has led him to this moment right now and this hallway and a conversation with me. 
and all of the stuff that I've done, and none of which involved owning sports teams or, or large companies or becoming a billionaire or marrying Jane Fonda. Everything I've done has also led to this exact same place. And I'm standing here in the same conversation in the same hallway. So then I thought, so what's the difference between me and Ted Turner? Why is he going to walk away from this hallway and go be a billionaire, and I'm going to walk away from this hallway, hallway and, and you know, go be whatever it is that I am, go be an executive coach person? And I realized the only big difference is that he is going to go and have different conversations with different people than I will. And it suddenly struck me that so much of our lives and our careers are nothing except having conversations with people about topics. Now, Ted, Ted talks about different things to people, and he talks to different people. However, I also do talk to people, and I do talk about different things. And, it, and I realized I can't control the people that I talk to. I mean, I, I can refuse to talk to someone, but I can't just necessarily call up the people that Ted Turner can call up and, and have them have a conversation with me. However, I can start having the conversations. I can have the conversations I want to have right now, even with the people I currently know. So I can start having Ted Turner's conversations, but I can have them with my friends and my neighbors and my relatives. And the funny thing that happens when you do that, when you start having the conversations that would create an extraordinary life, some people say, oh my God, I don't want to hear this. But you know what? I have a friend who might be interested. Go talk to this person. Recently, I have, and by, by recently, I mean really recently, like the last three weeks, uh, I have decided that the next phase of my life may have a may be trying to save the world from the environmental disasters and shifts brought about by global warming because I think this is a huge problem. Uh, the problem is I know nothing about global warming. I know nothing about about urban planning. I know nothing about disaster recovery. So I just started talking to people, and the people I would talk to say, "Well, I don't know anything about any of those people either, or I don't know anything about any of those topics either." But here, call this other person. And uh, that chain of phone calls led me to someone who invited me to a planning, to a, uh, an urban planning symposium at MIT yesterday. I attended that all day. I learned a bunch of things. And suddenly I am starting to get to shift and to get shifted closer and closer to the right people. And that's only been three weeks. Now, I don't know if this is what I really want to do. But, but the interesting thing is I didn't even have to start changing the people. All I did was change the conversation and the people started to change. And what you talk about makes a big difference. And this is the fundamental habit. The fundamental habit is do you talk about pursuing success or do you talk about the habits that will and the things that will lead you to pursue fulfillment? Now, ideally, we want to have both, but, but you don't. Psychologically, one or the other is the foremost way that you make decisions. And so the question is, which one do you put on top? And since, since we're being rigorous here. We're going to do a decision tree. What we're taught to do is we're taught to pursue success. And via the marshmallow strategy, we're taught once you're successful, then you can find fulfillment. So you pursue success, and either you find, find fulfillment or you don't. If you do find fulfillment, well, hey, you're successful and you're fulfilled. Yay. But if you don't find fulfillment, at least you're still successful. Woohoo! Now, the other strategy is to pursue fulfillment. And if you pursue fulfillment, then maybe you'll find success. Yay! But maybe you won't, in which case you have no money. But of course, you are fulfilled. 
Now, this is the starving artist strategy, and it's usually spoken of with some amount of scorn, uh, but it's equally, a, it's equally a strategy out there. And if you look at them both side by side, what you realize is that you can choose whether you're going to make success your primary pursuit or fulfillment your primary pursuit. And what you will notice is that in both cases, there is a path that leads to success and fulfillment. That happens, you can, you can do that regardless of which of the two paths you take. It's just that the path you take is tremendously different depending upon that first decision as to whether your primary habit is going to be pursuing success or pursuing fulfillment. Furthermore, in our society, we have tremendous structural support for pursuing success first, and we have very little societal support for pursuing fulfillment first. This led me to work with my coach, Michael Neal, to design an experiment. Our hypothesis, now remember, where we are here is these were the, these were the major myths that I identified from talking to my people, my, my classmates. And Michael and I said, if these in fact are myths, if I do the opposite of them, it should lead someplace extraordinary. So what my hypothesis was, if I spend my time pursuing whatever is a perfect 10 for me, which would be fulfillment, meaning, etc., if I choose for journeys, not for goals, if I put fun, passion, and meaning first, if I don't engage in hard work, now that doesn't mean I won't do things that require a lot of effort or a lot of hours. It just means it won't be hard work to find the stuff I don't enjoy. But if I do things that pull me forward because I love them so much, that's fine. And if I let go of planning and instead create luck, and what is luck? Luck is just people and places and conversations you ha that you have. And by the way, money is still okay in this scenario. I'm perfectly happy to accept money. But my, but my hypothesis is if I live according to these, then this will lead to having an extraordinary life and hopefully making a living. But at the very least, it will lead to an extraordinary life. I set aside three years of living money, uh, which... I am not independently wealthy, so setting aside three years of living money was actually a major psychological hurdle for me. And I said, you know what? For three years, I am going to remove money from my decision-making, and I'm going to pursue the perfect 10. I'm going to choose a journey, not goals, so on and so forth, and I'm going to see what happens. And I did. And what happened was nothing short, frankly, of extraordinary. During the three years that I performed the experiment, I started a podcast which... Uh, on personal productivity, which three weeks after launching became the number one business podcast on iTunes and stayed there for six weeks. And it's still in the top 10 or 20 virtually every day. Based on the podcast, I got a book contract and I wrote a book with a major publisher. One day during the, during the three years, I walked, a friend invited me to a play and I walked out of the, the play. It was a musical and I started crying. And it took me a month to figure out why I was crying. And the reason I was crying is because I felt like I wanted to be on the other side of the stage. Now, this is bizarre. I had never acted in my life. I had certainly never sung. Um, and since apparently some part of me felt strongly about that, I started taking singing lessons. And I have now been in four all the college productions and community theater. But I've been in four productions, including having the lead in one of them. And then... A joke about this to a friend about my book and me saying, oh, wouldn't it be funny if I had a one-man musical based on my book that I could perform that actually had real business content in it but was also dramatic and fun? Turns out my friend was a musical theater writer in New York. He teaches musical theater composition. Who knew? I certainly didn't know. And long story short, um, last November, for the first time, I performed Work Less and Do More, the zombie musical. It's all about personal productivity and zombies. And I co-wrote it, I produced it, 
and I starred in it. All without not only never having done that before, but never even, it wasn't even on my radar screen. It was so far off my radar screen, I would have said you were crazy if you had said I'd be doing this five minutes before the chain of events that led to it. I went to work at Babson College and helped them redesign the strategy for the school, and in the process was exposed to some very cutting-edge research on entrepreneurship, which also leads into how to live an extraordinary life. By the way, it has to do with how do you act in situations of unknowability. And as, a, as an explicit test of that, me and two friends founded a company and uh, ran it for two years and then shut it down. But the entire company got up and running with a 15-person staff, and we had a total capitalization of $5,000. It was a very successful company viewed as a test of the entrepreneurship principles. And I got involved in a company as a, an angel investor and advisor that did some really amazing, awesome green technologies uh, as well. So in those three years, I did more stuff than I thought would be on my entire bucket list in the rest of my life. And by the way, I always found a way to make a living. Now, it was terrifying because I never knew where that next dollar was going to come from. And that, uh, you know, it, it just seemed to happen. But, but yet it did happen. And in the process... I led an extraordinary life. And then the fact that I am an anal, retentive, super organized geek caught up with me. The day after the experiment was officially over, my brain popped back to living the way I had lived before with plans and goals and putting, putting my short-term ROI first, etc., etc. Um, and I had the most horrible year and a half of my professional career. It was stressful. I lost a ton of money. I tried to control many uncontrollable things. It was, boy, it was just, it was horrible. Um, and remember, this, was an ex this whole thing was an experiment. So based on my hypothesis and based upon what happened, I would say the experiment was successful. It showed that following that unusual set of conditions, in fact, would produce an extraordinary life. The only thing that it wouldn't give me is the illusion of security, which is what I seem to so drastically crave. Uh, now, in the process of all of this, I met a lot of people in performing arts, and all of them have the, what they have in common is their job doesn't pay anything. So in thinking about the follow your meaning and then find the way to, to uh, and then find, follow your fulfillment and then find a way to make money, um, the hard work in the in that scenario is finding the way to make money. Because unlike the pursue success and find fulfillment, we have, when you're doing that, great, you just go look at a job bank and voila, there's all the ways you have of pursuing success and choose the one that fits your success criteria. With the fulfillment, it is almost, at least in the theater, it is almost always about being very creative about how you find the revenue model. And here are some of the ways that people have done it. Some people work fast food. I know one person who is an actor on Broadway. He's an MIT grad, and he tutors people for more money per hour than I have ever seen. I know one person who produces Broadway theater, uh, Broadway theater and then does spin-off films, and he makes his money with the films, not with the theater. I know people who invest by day and act by night. I know people who work tech on shows, and they use that to fund 
whatever their, their performing arts passion is. Some people manage the theater companies. Some provide services to production, to other production companies. Some do consulting. Some are tour guides. A couple friends of mine who are actors in L.A. started a little summer camp for aspiring musical theater actors. They now run, uh, for teenagers, they now run eight sessions a year. They are sold out every session, and they have an extraordinarily successful, thriving business, and they still spend most of their time doing performing. So here are the takeaways. Here are the conclusions I came to. One is your head is very bad at setting your long-term direction because your heart has to be in it. So let your heart set the direction. Pursue whatever is a perfect 10 for you. But your head has a very important role. Once your heart has set the direction, your head is the part that will help you figure out how to get there. If you're pursuing the fulfillment and then finding money, your heart will show you where the fulfillment is. But then you have to, there is hard work involved. And the hard work in the in the branch where you pursue success first, the hard work is doing 20 years of the wrong job. In the branch where you pursue fulfillment, the hard work is figuring out the monetization factor so that you can continue to do what you love, but also monetize it. I do not believe that if you do what you love, the money will necessarily follow. You still have to apply yourself to making sure that it's, it follows. Create a journey, not a goal, so that you are pulled rather than having to force yourself to go the direction you want. Choose fulfillment first, then money. Make your own luck, but make it by, by choosing people and places to spend time that are likely to result in luck. Don't be lazy. Hard work can't get you there, but laziness can prevent you from getting there. And do your own experiment. As I pointed out, my experiment worked for three years, then I stopped doing the experiment and it stopped working. I have decided I'm going to start it up again. Uh, I no longer, thanks to 2008, actually, I no longer have the savings so that I'm, I'm not comfortable taking three years of living money. Oh, and by the way, I didn't actually have to dip into any of the living money that I set aside for the experiment. The experiment was self-funding. I, I found ways to make money the whole time. Um, uh, but I'm going to be doing the experiment again, and I'm putting a time limit on it again because psychologically I need that. And um, I'm going to see where it goes because the last time, boy, was it successful. So starting July 1st of this year, once again, I am going to be doing the experiment, and hopefully this time it will work and I will stick with it. And it will stop being an experiment, but it will become a way of life. Oh, excuse me. Because a traditional job and the traditional path is easier. It really is. Our society is set up to help you to help you get a job, even as bad as the job market currently is. But it's less extraordinary. It's predictable. It feels predictable. It's comfortable. And what you're doing is you're swapping money stress for the possibility of not having an extraordinary life. And what I want for me and what I want for you, if you want it, is when it's time for that final exam and the question comes up, did you live an extraordinary life with the one life that I gave you? I think you should be able to answer yes to that question. And I think it's all of our right. And the only question is, how do we do it? And I'm hoping that I have stumbled on some of the principles. And, you know, if you are living an extraordinary life, the journey really is the reward. And I hope that everyone here has an, uh, has a, uh, an amazing and fantastic journey. Audience question number one. What if I don't know what an extraordinary life is for me? Well, when I started my experiment, I didn't know what one was for me. And what I found was that um, uh, the first six months of my experiment was literally just spent getting to the point where I didn't panic, by it, where, where, I did, where I could make a decision without making money my number one criteria, and I didn't panic over that. I had never realized how much short-term ROI had gotten factored into my thinking, and it was really a challenge. And then the next question was, 
I had been so consumed with that. How do I, um, how, you know, what do I do? Because I didn't know. I had no idea. And it was just, I mean, one of my passions appeared to be musical theater. There's a number of things you can do. One is, is make the first several months of your experiment getting out and trying things. And by definition, try stuff outside of your comfort zone. I went to this urban planning seminar for, um, and knew nothing about urban planning and discovered after, after a day and a half of it that like, oh my gosh, this is actually fascinating. I could even imagine myself going back and getting a degree in it. And I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't gone, excuse me, if I hadn't gone to this day and a half seminar. Um, same for musical theater. There's a lot of ways, and this is a bigger question than I can answer super briefly, but look for where you have strong emotion. And if the strong emotion is depression, anger, sadness, outrage, um, then your passion is probably the opposite of the thing you're upset about. So if you're, so I, I get very angry and frustrated about global warming. Well, then guess what? Maybe the passion I should start investigating is the prevention of global warming, is the opposite part, or sustainability or whatever. And that's the, that's one way to do it. Or if I cry when I go see a play, look into why am I crying? And if I'm crying because of the play itself, because I want to be on stage, take an acting class. If I'm crying because the issues in the play moved me, what are those issues? And are those issues that I would want to make a bigger part of my life? Audience question. You designed your experiment responsibly. How do you incorporate the experiment, but also the risk factor if you have kids and a mortgage and responsibilities, et cetera? Right. Well, you know, again, and this is this is the hardest part to hear. This is also the hardest part for me psychologically, and I guarantee it's the hardest part for everyone. It's going to be the hardest part for everyone on this call, is you have to understand that those same commitments and responsibilities you have are the very things that are holding you where you are. And sometimes you can renegotiate them. I had a talk with my partner and explained the whole thing beforehand and made sure that there was mutual buy-in, that this was really necessary for my life and, and my well-being. Uh, you can simply decide you're going to do it and end up getting divorced, which I wouldn't. Yeah, well, you know, I was I say I wouldn't recommend that. I don't know if if your marriage is your biggest impediment to living a life that you think is a life worth living, it's worth considering. Uh, you know, and and again, that's very hard to hear. But if you really if you really are stuck in an area that you believe is a waste of the remaining years that you have. The only way that you're going to be able to start spending your time doing something like this experiment is to ramp down what you're currently doing. Take a year of sabbatical if you can. Negotiate with your job. Maybe um, I've just found out yesterday about a friend of mine who has an amazing job, and it's, a, it's at McKinsey, of all places, uh, where she works four months on, four months off, and alternates that way, and still makes a full, uh, uh, still makes a, a, a full living, apparently, doing this. You know, something like that could be could be an option. And again, this is where you have to get really creative. And I'm not sure in, you know, in two minutes that I can give a general answer that works for everyone. Audience question. Pursuing fulfillment doesn't guarantee that you actually will be fulfilled once you have it. Can you talk about that? This is where some of the entrepreneurship research that I mentioned comes in, which I didn't talk about at all during the presentation so far, is what you do is is you don't necessarily just pursue one fulfillment. When I said pursue your perfect 10, your perfect 10 may change. And if it does change, stop pursuing the one that it isn't anymore and pursue the one that it is now. Um, and that's, you know, part of that is becoming sensitive to yourself to know when you're actually feeling fulfilled. Um, and part of that is I think of the experiment as, as actually a, a series of micro experiments. And each experiment is essentially go try something and for some amount of time, and then at the end of that amount of time, 
decide, is this something I want to continue with, either because I think I can find a way to make it pay, or I don't care if I can find a way to make it pay, it's fulfilling. Like with theater, I'm never going to make theater pay. But knowing that that is is one of the elements of a fulfilling life for me. It means that I can structure my work life around being in one geographic area and having evenings free so that I'm able to rehearse and to do community theater in the evenings. And that's very important. It doesn't mean the thing that fulfills me is going to become my job, but what it does mean is the thing that fulfills me becomes a constraint that I design my job around. And if it didn't, and if it, if I got it and it didn't fulfill me, I'd go do something else. I would say, well, okay, tried that, didn't work, next. Um, but but sticking with what you don't enjoy for too long just strikes me as, you know, again, if you, if you get hit by a car tomorrow, um, that's it. <laughs> and I'm just like, no. Audience question. How does your answer change if your objective function isn't money but achievement? That is, if what you care about is achievement but not money. If the object, if the object function is achievement, I would put that – I would actually put that in the fulfillment category with the money being a – being an aspect of whether or not you can capture any economic value that was created by the achievement. I happen to be one of these people for whom achievement is an unbelievably strong uh, motivator. That's like my ultimate reward for things. And, um, you know, the nice thing about that is that you can put achievement on either one of those paths. I can pursue things that I find fulfilling and do achievements there so I can write and produce and star in a play. Uh, I can also put achievement on the other branch. I can go out and I can start companies. I can, uh, you know, I'm very good. I, my podcast is all about getting things done. I mean, I've, I've turned my passion for achievement into a, you know, into an entire little media uh, event here. Uh, so, so I would say, I would say it, it, it doesn't really change. And in fact, it gives you more flexibility because achievement can migrate easily between both branches. Audience question. How do you apply this if you want a better job, but in the same industry? What I would do is look for the elements, and this gets back to how do you know what's fulfilling. Make a list of all the things you don't like about your current job, and the opposite of those are going to be things that you're looking for. And then I would start doing the people and conversations, and I would have the conversations being about about those elements. So let's say that you want a place that's more cooperative. I'd start talking to people in my own industry about, now, I don't want to say, oh, do you know someplace that's more cooperative? Because that signals to people you're thinking of jumping ship, and that may or may not be a wise move to make at that point. But you could say, you know, I'm, I'm interested in the role of cooperation in our, in our industry. You know, can you tell me how it works in your company? And you can find ways to start to gather information. And of course, by the way, if you're asking questions about that, the people you're asking them of start to know that you're somebody who shares those values. And if they're in a workplace where those values are important, just the very fact you are asking about it is going to start putting you on their radar screen. And then, of course, the, I mean, the, and then they're, they're, you still have to do a job hunt, presumably, et cetera. But, but that will start to shift you in the direction of of hanging out with people and having conversations that are about the things that that will work for you and that will work better for you and be more fulfilling even in your own industry. Audience question. How do you set a timeline for achieving your extraordinary life or do we set one at all? Now my experiment was time limited and I actually think that was very important because it was so scary for me that I wasn't willing to just do an open-ended risk and say, oh, I'm going to live my life this way forever. Um, uh, so I actually do think that time I think that time limits on individual experiments are very important because you know a they remove the psychological risk and b as opposed to just I, I notice the older I've gotten the easier it becomes to put years and years into something without even noticing how much time has passed and putting a time limit forces you to go back and reevaluate is this getting me 
really where I want. And the time limit, you know, I think is is pretty subjective because uh, think you change over time. The world changes, you change. Ten years ago, being an executive coach was the only thing I thought I'd ever want to do. And now I'm discovering that I, and by the way, I still love it and I still find it incredibly fulfilling, but it's only a piece of what I want to do now. I also want to go save the world from global warming. And I also want to perform my one-man show and get it produced and maybe start doing that around the business circuit. So th there are many, there are many things. And the time frame, you know, the time frames also depend on the project. The one-man show, which I thought was going to take six months to put together, it's, it's been two years because I only work on it in my spare time. So there will be six or eight months between between times that I look at it. And I, I just have to set an arbitrary deadline. Like I've set an arbitrary deadline. I want to actually put it up in New York at the beginning of July. Yes, it was beginning of July was when we decided. And by just giving myself an arbitrary deadline, it has now forced me to bring together all the resources and the people and the things that need to happen to make it happen. And I'm going to start memorizing it and rehearsing the music and getting my costume made. So to some degree, it's an arbitrary question in terms of how long do you, you know, how long do you do this? Um, uh, how long do you pursue any particular thing? You know, and I would say, I would say pursue it as long as it's motivating. If I, if I lost interest in the one man show, I just wouldn't continue to work on it. I would go on to something else and I would say, wow, that was really fun. You know, I wrote a script and I performed it twice, but, but deep down inside, I want to be able to say, I wrote a script. I performed it many, many, many times. I helped dozens of people or hundreds of thousands of people with the content in it. Um, and in my heart of hearts, I want to become famous for it. And I want it to be like a fabulous thing that everyone talks about because I have ego needs. <laughs> Audience question. Did you write down and formulate things during the process or did you just go with the flow? Um, well, are you asking, hmm, I'm, if what you're asking is, do I make plans for the process? The answer is no. That's, and that's, that's part of the whole point. However, um, I did start to keep a diary, which I only kept for a little while because things got so amazing. I didn't want to spend the time writing. I wanted to spend the time going, <laughs> going and living this extraordinary life I was creating. Um, uh, you know, if, if some of the micro tasks require planning, for example, actually putting up a one-man show, it turns out is, a very, is much more complicated than I thought. I thought I could just walk into a room with a microphone, and it turns out, no, 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 no. So for that, yes, I have plans. I, I have contract people. I have to get sound engineer. I mean, there's a, a lot of moving parts to that. So I use planning for that. But in terms of um, – and, and I have a, a, someone else who I've taken through this as well. And with them, you know, they we did a few plans, but the plans were more along the lines of let's figure out the set of experiments that we want to have you try over the next few months to find things that you find really compelling and exciting. And let's find beliefs that you want to address and things that you want to deal with. And, and so our plan was more about the process – of expl exploration, experimentation, and getting outside of the box, the plan was not, here's the specific things we're going to do. This has been Living an Extraordinary Life with Steve Robbins. You can find me on the web at www.steverrobbins.com. That's S-T-E-V-E-R-R-O-B-B-I-N-S dot -E 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 com. Thank you for joining me.